0: This has become a very beautiful sacred space, and it's tempting not to say anything at all. (laughs) But I did have a few thoughts. about thoughts. So this is uh, a talk on uh, thinking. (coughs) And I uh, was quite inspired by some of the things that Eugene brought to us last night. So I wanted to kind of start there. And I'll begin with a quote of uh, Suzuki Roshi, (coughs) who said, When you are sitting and thinking of your problem, which is more real to you, your problem or you yourself? The awareness of your presence right now is the ultimate fact. There we are, the relative and the universal, or the relative and the absolute, existing right here, in this presence that we hold, and in the very mundane, often very mundane, content of our thoughts. They're right here together, no separation. And sometimes we do take our thoughts to be quite real. And sometimes, something opens, and we get a glimpse or a flash of presence. The same presence that was with you when you were born, the same presence that will be with you when you die, the presence that is unconditioned, unfabricated, that has nothing to do with effort or time spent meditating, the luminous mind which is given us as our birthright, what Talku calls self-existing wakefulness. He said, it is present in the mind streams of all humans, from the beginning of primordial time. And it is right here with us. So we might ask, well, what is it that keeps us from realizing it, from opening to it? So that's the subject of the talk tonight, is what is it that veils or covers this luminous presence? So many of you have heard of the monk Buddha Dasa, who uh, lived for many years in southern Thailand, <coughs> was quite a, uh, uh, renowned for his wisdom and his understanding a very, very simple man who lived most of his life sitting and walking, contemplating, reflecting, writing under a tree in southern Thailand. And a whole monastery kind of grew up around him. And all of Thailand came to pay their respects to this honored elder. And one day somebody asked him, they said, Buddhadasa, how would you describe the world? And he said three words lost in thought. Sitting here we can see that, can't we? All those beings in here and outside in what we call the world, completely lost in thought worlds. So when we see this, and we see it most acutely in our own practice, we get kind of discouraged, don't we? At times we get a little bit alarmed. Oh my gosh, how am I ever going to get rid of all of this thinking? Or if only I could get rid of this thinking. Well, this is not actually the goal of practice so that should be good news to you. You don't have to get rid of thinking. What we actually are after is something a little bit more um, challenging in a way, which is to understand the nature of thought, to see thinking for what it is. There's a Tibetan saying, It's a tall order to ask for tea without leaves or for meat without bones. As long as you have a mind, there will be thoughts and emotions. It is unrealistic to expect a mind not to have thoughts, like an ocean has waves. There is a cartoon from the New Yorker of a woman go, who goes to the doctor and he, he she's sitting in his office looking kind of shocked and he's saying to the, the the doctor is saying to her, There is no cure, Mrs. Handler. That's because there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> minds minds think. That is what they do. So we mustn't imagine that there is a cure for something that is like part of nature. It's part of the nature of mind to think. That doesn't mean, however, that we need to spend the rest of our days lost in thought, that we need to spend the rest of our days driven by our thoughts, but that actually we have the capacity in our practice to cultivate a relationship with our thinking, a relationship in which we can see the difference between being lost in thought and seeing thinking for what it is. We could say the point is not to get rid of thinking, and certainly thoughts have a great power and place in our lives. But the point is not to be identified with our thinking. To be able to relate to our thinking as another manifestation of anicca, impermanence, thoughts come, thoughts go, another manifestation of dukkha, That when we get lost in thought, when we believe our thoughts to be real, we tend to suffer unnecessarily. And anatta, that there is a a, a quality of thought that is not personal. So tonight I'd like to take a closer look at thought. And remind you that, as with every other object of meditation, the closer we look, the more we see. And the more we see about any of the objects of meditation, the less likely are we to get caught, to get identified, to get entangled. So first (coughs) I'd like to look at the anatta aspect of thinking because I think it is the, that aspect which creates um, the most confusion for us. And, and then, w- then after we have done that, I'd like to um, explore four deeply conditioned patterns of thinking which we can directly experience in our practice that will give us more insight into how it is working in us. And as always with the Dharma, but I feel like it's just somehow important to mention, this talk is meant to point you really back to your own experience, where the reality of what I am saying lives. This is not theory or speculation. I'm trying to point to something which you might see very directly in your own experience. So this word anatta, or emptiness of self, what this is pointing to is that here we are. We appear as a body with sense doors, and we appear as a mind. And when we really look, we cannot find a locatable someone who is directing or controlling the body or the mind. For example, the breathing. The breathing. We can look at each of these components and we'll start with the breath. Our breathing begins at birth and breathing is occurring even as we speak. The breath breathes itself. You don't have to remind yourself to inhale to exhale. There is no one behind the breath controlling it or making it happen. Where is the breather? Or is there just breathing? We could say the same of seeing. Seeing is occurring. What is seeing? Who is seeing? Seeing is seeing. There is no one making it happen, no one directing or controlling color and light and shadow entering the eye and being seen. It is all happening by itself. In the same way, tasting is happening, hearing is happening. There is no one directing or controlling any of the sense doors. It's all happening by itself according to the unfolding of causes and conditions, coming together and creating sight, sound, taste, sensation. There is this kind of impersonal quality to it. Now we might get a sense of this. On the physical level, how impersonally the breathing and the hearing and the seeing, etc., function. But when it comes to our thinking and to our emotions, we all too quickly assume a "me to whom all this thinking is referring to. We assume uh, an ownership, my thought. My feelings. I mean, everyone hears, everyone breathes, everyone sees, everyone tastes, but no one else experiences my thoughts, my feelings. Our thoughts and feelings seem very personal, don't they? They seem to be about us. They seem to be ours. So let's look more closely at this. How personal, really, is our thinking? First of all, what language do you think in? Now I would speculate that most of us, perhaps not all of us, but most of us think in English. Perhaps some of you do not think in English. If you were born... In India, for example, you might be thinking in Hindi or Tamil or Parsi. We learned as children to think in English. In fact, most of us can only think in English. If we were to say to you for the remainder of the retreat, please think in Hindi, you probably wouldn't have too many thoughts, would you? We also can only think in the words that we have learned. We don't think in words that we don't know the meaning of, do we? I don't. (laughs) If I don't know the meaning of the word profligate, I'm not likely to be having a lot of thoughts that include that word. We were given language by our parents, by our teachers, and where did they get it? Where did they get their language from their parents and their teachers? And when we think about language and how it evolved through centuries of evolving through different cultures, through different civilizations, through different meanings, through different times and places, every word that we speak, every word that we have learned has actually traveled many centuries through time and space to us. It comes to us from places, times, people that we have never met. Isn't that amazing?" And this is the, the language that we then pass on to our, to our young people, to our children. But we live so much in this kind of sea of words and language and meanings of words that we hardly notice how much it is conditioning our view of reality and of ourselves. We take all these words and construct a shared reality. We give enormous uh, power to knowing the names of things, to knowing words. Another cartoon, oh oh it's not a cartoon, it's a little saying, just because your doctor has a name for your condition doesn't mean he knows what it is or how to help you. So you might be told you have something, you know, rufiitis, congelitis, and, you know, just knowing somehow that it has a name, you already feel better because it's been identified even though nobody has a clue as to how to treat you. So we give this power to words, to language. So not only were we given language and words to use, we also learned as children what to think about, what it is important to think about. Now if I had been born, for example, as a, a male child in a peasant family in Ladakh, I would probably be thinking about different things than I am thinking about as a white middle-class American woman. Or if I had been born in Harlem or East LA or if I was an African American or Asian American or Latino, I might very well be thinking in ways different than I do given my conditioning. We think really according to the values and culture that we grew up in. We could say in short that most of our thinking is highly influenced by others and perhaps not as uniquely personal as we like to imagine. How many of you in the past 24 hours have had a highly original or unique thought? please raise your hand. You know that study that they did at Stanford about um, 93 percent of what we are thinking about today are the same thoughts that we had yesterday. (laughs) So most of you are probably thinking about, you know, the weather, your body, the food, your practice, how you're doing, are you getting better, are you getting worse? what you want, what you fear, about the other people here, about the teachings. There's a lot of repetition here. Now that doesn't mean there isn't the possibility of creative thinking, of breakthroughs of unique and original thought, but it's rather the exception, we could say. We could also observe, and many of you have seen this, that our thinking is is not so much under our control as we would like it to be. Sometimes thoughts appear, it seems, that are nonsensical, out of nowhere, for no reason, and they disappear all by themselves when we don't interfere. Thoughts come, thoughts go. And just as we can control our breathing for certain limited periods of time, we can see that we can exert some control over our thinking. But even when we are trying to focus and exert control, our thoughts still seem to have a life of their own, sometimes with rather humorous results. When I was doing metta practice uh, for a long period of time, (coughs) one of my phrases was, may I be free from harm. And so I would be saying this from morning till night, for days on end, may I be free from harm, may I be free from harm. And suddenly I heard one day, may I be free from Harry. And I thought, Harry? You know, like, who's Harry? (laughs) I don't know Harry. (laughs) And I'd be saying, may all beings be free from Harry. (laughs) Our thoughts seem to have a life of their own. So these are some of the aspects of this quality of the... Uh, uncontrollable and um, rather uh, universal aspects of our thinking. Now I'd like to turn our attention a little bit and look more um, specifically at some of the root causes of this display of thought in our mind. This. This ongoing display of thought is, is called uh, papancha, which is a Pali word. And it means, uh, well what it is, is the tendency to get lost in thought. More uh, technically or accurately, it is called mental proliferation. Or the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to experiences or objects. The unbidden going. You're sitting, minding your own business, and suddenly you're back in the fourth grade. You're, suddenly you're, you're minding your own business, and suddenly you're projecting what you're going to say to your boss when you leave here in two weeks. It is thinking which takes us further and further away from the actuality of this moment, of this living moment. One of the older texts um, describes Papancha as this. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. <laughs> the bare data might be a person walks in the room. The effusion of mental commentary would be all of your reactions and thoughts about the person. All the person has done is walk in the room and suddenly there's this whole papancha that begins to happen. So papancha is this unbidden eruption of thought and it also implies a projection onto the objects of the world, characteristics that are not there. And because Papancha invests objects with various projected characteristics, it prevents us from actually seeing things as they are. In other words, and this happens really quickly, but beginning to know about it, we can begin to notice it in our practice. So we like something. We imagine and project positive qualities onto whatever that is, whether it's a person or a a sunset or a, a taste, a smell. We don't like something, and we imagine and project onto that object negative qualities, whatever it is. So this is just a description of how it works and this is something you can actually observe in your own practice. So now I'd like to explore with you what are called the four root causes of this activity of papancha. The four root causes are tanha papancha which is the proliferation and projection of greed, of desire, the wanting mind. Dosa-papancha, the proliferation and projection of aversion, of not liking, of fear, of hatred, of uh, judgment. Ditti-papancha, which is the proliferation of views and opinions and the beliefs about something. And finally, Manya Papancha, Mana Papancha, which is the proliferation of identity through thought. The thoughts about ourselves, the story we tell ourselves about who we are and how we're doing starring the ever-present me. <laughs> so I'd like to go through each of these and explore a, a little bit of, of each of these with you. The first is uh, Tanha Papancha, the projection of greed. Tanha is a Pali word meaning unslakable thirst. The mind which desires, the mind which craves, the mind which wants, in this kind of um, obsessive or compulsive way. It's not an idle wanting, it's a, it's a craving, it's a thirst. In the Dhammapada it says, The rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be slaked." Desires are unquenchable and end in tears. That quality of never being satisfied, of always wanting more. So, Tanha Papancha is this projection of desire onto objects or experiences, making them appear desirable. We are caught in this whenever our sense of well-being is dependent on having this object, having a particular kind of experience, or getting a particular kind of object that we want. <coughs> and most of the time in our conventional world, not so much in the retreat world, but <coughs> In our conventional world, we believe very much that the way to resolve our desires is by satisfying them, attaining them. We have a whole uh, material culture built on this premise that the way to be happy is is to attain as many of one's desires as possible. Now, practice is a radical questioning of this. We question this in practice, and we, we say instead that perhaps the way to resolve desire is by knowing it more intimately, seeing in our own direct experience how desire <coughs> works, seeing how it drives us, how it drives our thinking our planning, and that there's a lot to notice in that, because often when we really experience the state of desire, we experience some tension, some contractions, some sense of um, trying to control that's actually a kind of unpleasantness, we could even say a kind of suffering. So right now I'd like to invite you, as a little experiment, to think of something you want. Think of something right now that you really, really would like. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? Often it is a kind of narrowing of our attention a kind of grip or a kind of trance. We forget about everything else except what it is that we want. You have the old saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. There's a lot that we miss out on when we are in the grip of desire, Isn't isn't it true? We get very focused. We can also begin to notice more about what it is that hooks us in. What is it that really uh, we're after? The example I'd like to give is that of wanting a new car, a kind of common example uh, in our culture. We could ask ourselves, what is it in particular about wanting a car that hooks us? If we're a teenager, it may be the idea of being independent, being an adult, being autonomous, having wheels. Or perhaps we want a particular kind of car with a particular detail of design or function that we just think is absolutely nifty and we can't live without it. I have a friend who bought a car with a navigation system and it's really like uh, just th- the thrill of his life. I mean, he when he first got the car, he was like driving everywhere just to practice with his navigation <laughs> system, you know, like even places he knew how to get to, he was so excited about being able to look at the map to find out how to get there. Another hook might be the state of mind which having this particular object gives us. It might give us a sense of um, excitement or um, freedom. Or it might be that we have a certain self-image by having a certain kind of car. So we can explore in this way with any desire that arises to see what is the hook? Where am I getting hooked into this desire? What do I think attaining this object is going to give me? Getting enlightened, for example, that's a good one. What is getting enlightened going to give you? A better personality, (laughs) you'll have more friends, people will listen to you, you'll have power, (coughs) you'll never be disturbed again. What is it particularly that you're after? It's a way of exploring, asking ourselves that question. One text says that we see desirable objects as having feathers. We see them as kind of better than they really are. We invest them with all kinds of qualities or powers or attributes which they may not actually have. And this, of course, is the basis of romance, isn't it? And especially here on retreat, you know, the Vipassana romance, where never mind that we don't even know the person's name or (laughs) anything about them. But still we invest them with all these amazing qualities that will fulfill our wildest dreams." There was one yogi who um, shared about her particular um, Vipassana romance and noticed that even when she saw the object of her romance's shoes outside the meditation room, her heart leapt. So there's an interesting question in all this because this is such an automatic tendency of the mind to project its fantasies of fulfillment out onto the objects and experiences in our world, and um, the question that gets raised is if all the if our projection of desire is withdrawn from the world. Does the world of phenomena, the world that we live in, cease to be interesting? There is a a lovely um, poet by the name of Ryokan, a hermit monk who wrote poetry and lived the life of solitude in his mountain hut, lived with very little, robe and a bowl, in fact that's the name of his poetry book. And he wrote a poem that says, <clears throat> without desire everything is sufficient. With seeking myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with the deer, cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears, the pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. I love that poem because it points us to a connection with reality that is not based on the satisfaction of all of our desires. The Buddha said that the highest form of knowing in this world is to see everything in its suchness, to see everything without projecting desire or aversion, without identification. The poet Rumi wrote, those who wish to awaken consume their desires joyfully. Mostly we don't think that way, do we? Mostly we think of it as some sort of deprivation. What would it be like to consume our desires joyfully? Then there is the dosa papancha, the thinking that is driven by aversion, by not liking, by the mind which wants to get rid of things. If only I could get rid of the noise, the pain, the thinking, the fear, then I would be able to meditate. That's one manifestation of dosa papancha. Another is the a uh, very common um, thought pattern that runs something like this. This should not be happening. I have taken a wrong turn somewhere and I, I, this should not be happening to me. I should not be thinking, I should not be having fear at this point in the retreat, I should be more concentrated, I should be this, I should be hap- that, this that is happening should not be happening. Or we project it out onto the environment. We look around and we see this person should not be walking so fast. This person should not be walking so slow. This person should not be taking so much food. This person should be chewing more quietly. We make up this whole list of rules according to who? me about how it's supposed to be. Why? Because there's something we don't like. What we're really trying to do is get rid of the unpleasant, aversive feelings. And we think that by rearranging the world, then we can finally be peaceful. We can finally come to peace. So we make up rules. What rules have you been making up for yourself or for others here? I bet you have a list. (laughs) Take a look, see what's behind those rules. What is it that you don't want to feel? What is it that you are trying to avoid? I've done the same. There was one retreat I sat many, many years ago at IMS where I was finally feeling a little peace, a little happiness, finally getting a sense of calm, and I felt like I was hot on the trail of, you know, something important. Sitting happily in the hall between sittings and somebody, a new arrival, came in the back door. And they came in with construction material, and they proceeded to build themselves a little hut. (laughs) (laughs) in the back of the hall. And I was just like, you know, trying to ignore it. And I'm peaceful. I'm happy. I'm not going to pay any attention to this amazing... What is that sound? I have to turn around. And what do I see? You know, this little hut being constructed in the back of the hall. Well, I was convinced this was not... Right. You know, I had all kinds of ideas about why this should not be happening. (laughs) After a while, this person settled down. He seemed quite happy in his hut, actually. (laughs) But I noticed that every time I saw him, even if it was in the dining room or someplace completely away from his hut, I just had all kinds of aversive thoughts about him. Even when he was being very quiet, I still didn't like him because of this (laughs) hut. So we can see this thinking driven by not liking, wanting to get rid of it, wanting to change the world in some significant way. Then we move on to ditti papancha, the thought that is driven by ideas of right and wrong, of views and opinions, the activity of mind which has opinions and often feels they're quite justified and would like to tell, if nobody else, at least yourself, why (laughs) they are justified. (laughs) The mind which tries to convince itself of the, the complete airtight logic of its views. What does this serve, this activity of coming to views and opinions? What does it give us? It's very curious to look at, really. Why do we do that? I think it's a way to make ourselves feel kind of secure. We can also see quite a bit of self in that, can't we? Quite a bit of sense of self arises with our opinions. There's a cartoon of a a husband and wife arguing and you can tell they've been at it for a while. The woman is sitting with her arms crossed. The man is looking kind of desperate, and he's saying to her, well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? (laughs) 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 Rumi offers this advice. He says, out beyond all ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there." Letting go of our opinions, what does it take when we are so invested? A start is simply to acknowledge an opinion is just that. It is a view, it is a conclusion, it is a prejudice of the mind, not absolute truth. You know what I I mentioned Yogi Berra before? I think I better mention him again. It's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. It seems that one of the experiences in life that we most avoid and resist is the experience of not knowing, of just not knowing the answer to something. We would rather have an opinion, even the wrong opinion, than simply not to know. But in practice, you know, we actually value the opening of the mind to not knowing, not knowing so much. And I would invite you all to Just look at what is the actual experience of not knowing something, of saying, I don't know. What is that like for you? Live there a little while. Discover what that place is in you. The fourth root cause of Papancha is called Mana Papancha, and that is the thinking about ourselves, telling ourselves the story of our lives thought which takes itself to be me and mine." And this uh, me that we imagine ourselves to be is quite noisy. It has a lot of stories it wants to tell. It has a lot of uh, experience to think about. It has a lot to say, this me. There is a cartoon, um, the student saying to the master, I've tried everything, yet when I meditate, nothing happens. And the the teacher says, excellent. (laughs) Mostly we think that something has to be happening and that we have a lot to say about what that is. I had a teacher in India by the name of Punjaji, who at the end of his life um, wrote a memoir, and it's in three volumes. He didn't actually write it. A student of his wrote it, but it ended up being three, three books, three volumes, and the title of it is Nothing Ever Happened. I love the paradox of that, that you can have a memoir in three volumes called, Nothing Ever Happened. (laughs) A poem from uh, the Zen tradition by Ichikyo, empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. How many of us would be willing to uh, let go of our story to that degree? To simply let that be our life story. Lama Paldin um, is a wonderful teacher who um, in the, in the Tibetan tradition, who, who wrote a little piece about her three-year retreat, which I'd like to share with you. She said, when I originally went into the retreat, I had the idea that it would somehow be a solution to all my problems, that at last I would receive the most profound instructions, be able to practice them without distraction, and if not actually attain awakening, at least make some pretty healthy progress along the path. Needless to say, my expectations were not fulfilled. At least not in the way I expected. Oh yes, the profound instructions were given, and it was possible to practice them. But there was one big catch, and that was me. Buddha Dasa says, We do not need to speak of the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, or any points of doctrine. We have to forget about all those things and begin our studies by examining the words me and mine, or rather the feeling in the heart which gives rise to these words. To truly understand me and mine leads to the extinction of suffering. So seeing the thought that creates and recreates and holds on to and keeps creating this sense of self, this sense of me, I'm here, I exist, and this is my experience over and over and over again, creates a very uh, strong sense of self. Not that we need to get rid of it, but only again to see it, for what it does to us. What is that about, that grasping on to me?" One more reflection on the creation of self. This is from a man who was walking in the Sahara desert, Roger Houston. And he says, After a few hours of walking, it was obvious I was going nowhere. When I turned back to see how far I had come, the wind had already brushed my footprints away. I realized in the desert how our sense of self is so intricately bound up in its relation with something or someone other even if that other is no more than a sand dune. Without even a sand dune for reference, Roger Houston seemed to slip away for a while, leaving little but the simple sensation of being alive, not as this identity or that, but simply as aliveness itself. And we have many moments of that on retreat without any thought of me or mine. There's just breathing, just hearing, just sensing, just tasting, just seeing, just thinking, that too. So these are uh, aspects of thought that we can observe in our practice. We can notice what is fueling this thought train. Is it desire? Is it greed? Is it aversion? Is it the uh, need to, to construct a sense of me and mine? Is it opinion? Is it views? We can begin to include that in our noticing. You can feel the energy of it in your body. You can feel the energy of it in your mind. So once again, our goal is not to rid ourselves of thinking, but to see both its use and its limitations. To see that thought itself does not bring us to the unconditioned, to the sense of the suchness of the world. It does not bring us home to luminous presence. And the good news in all this is that we can notice that. We can see it directly in our experience. Mindfulness has the power to reveal the power of thought and its limitations. Hui Neng says, no thought is not to think even when thinking. What would that be like? Not to be lost in thought, but just to notice thinking as clouds moving through the sky. So I'd like to go back to the beginning with Suzuki Roshi. I can find it. When you are sitting and thinking of your problem, which is more real to you? Your problem or you yourself? The awareness of your presence right now is the ultimate fact. So we can include that in our practice. Let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on March 15, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.